You're listening to Australian Spotlight. Growing up in the Australian surfing town of Torquay, Beth Jens has gone on to study rocket science at Stanford and is now working at NASA's world-famous Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL. We caught up in downtown LA for a chat. Here it is. You come from one of the most beautiful parts of the world, Torquay, surf coast of Victoria. Tell me about growing up there. So I grew up a few blocks from the beach, got to look at the night sky every night and uh, always wondered why everyone else in the world didn't want to live in Torquay, Australia. I loved it down there. Had a family that was very involved with the ocean and sort of prioritised spending our days in the water and it was pretty idyllic. It's a town that is more famous for Rip Curl and Quicksilver were both born there. I'm not aware of any rocket scientists blazing a trail before you out of Torquay. I don't think I even really knew any adult engineers growing up. Uh, I wasn't even really sure what engineering was. But when I was in primary school, my dad happened to take a flight with one of the Apollo astronauts. And it turned out that that astronaut was doing a talk in Geelong, of all places. And so shortly thereafter, as a family, we went to hear him talk. And that was pretty, um, I don't know, pretty life-changing, I guess. And then we had, like, a telescope that we'd have out in the backyard that none of us ever really worked out how to use. (laughs) But uh, we did, like, try... To take an interest always in, in the sky and, and after hearing that astronaut talk I was like god he's a real person he's right in front of me why couldn't I do that he was one of the one of the lucky guys who got to stand there and look back at earth and so he talked about that feeling of standing there looking at your home planet as one of the few lucky humans who got to leave it and I just thought that I would love to do that mm. and even better he got to do that sort of in the name of humanity like Mm. he avoided or helped avoid potential massive conflict uh with russia and so to get to say that you're an ambassador of the world i just thought was pretty cool yeah pretty cool and so do you remember your first experience with with space was it um looking up at the sky in torquay through that backyard telescope or uh honestly most of my memories of looking through that telescope were pretty pretty blurry (laughs) (laughs) it was definitely right around that age i actually had Um, My dad got me Patrick Moore's Mission to the Planets book and reading that I got pretty excited. I think I always liked the idea of adventure Mm. and and that hit home and the combination of seeing a person who'd left Earth and then reading about all these other planets that were out there and still pretty unexplored got me very excited. Have you still got that book? I do. It's... uh, it's in my bedroom in my folks' house, which I insist <laughs> keeping. Yeah. Uh, it's full of my books and it's, it's definitely there. It's funny because I, yeah, after seeing Apollo 13, I went through a stage of being, actually wanted to be one of the people in the room that helped, as they phrased, like, you know, square peg in the round hole. Yeah. And I was like, I want to do that job. Yeah. Um, Looking at the computers with cool headsets on. Yeah, all that jazz. Yeah. I'm probably the only, like, 13-year-old girl who was like, oh, yeah, that's the job I want. So I think when I was like, Right at the end of primary school, I started telling people I wanted to be an astronaut. Didn't really know then, uh, you know, all that was involved. I've been really lucky that this childhood dream hasn't really changed. Mm. You know, if you asked me as a 12-year-old what got me excited, I would have said, oh, yeah, exploring. Oh, and I'd love to fly, which is not really a great motivation for choosing a career necessarily. (laughs) I just want to float in space and look down at the pretty views. Um, I was actually amazed that more people didn't laugh at me. Um, my folks were great. I remember dad saying, oh, you know, you can do anything you want to do. For the most part, my hometown, I think because I'd started so young saying I want to do it, were very mm. supportive, actually. Yeah. Um, so when I was 18 and going into year 12, 
the local newspaper, the Geelong Advertiser, were like, oh, we're doing a series on different people from different schools. And so because you want to be an astronaut, we think it'd be interesting to see how you go through year 12. And so they then followed me, which is a, you know, it's a nice sense of, nice little booster when you're 18 years old. Yeah. And at that point, just someone claiming they want to go to space, but doesn't really have any qualifications. <laughs> there were some people who didn't know what to do with me. I remember the career counsellor at Sacred Heart just kind of looked at me and threw her hands in the air and was like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm meant to do with that. But for the most part, I've been really lucky. I feel like my little surf town was actually pretty excited about having someone going off to do something different. So yeah. at various points, actually, a lot of people from the town who, you know, I didn't necessarily even know all that well mm. um, have come up to support me. Whether it's even like the local bank, like the bank tellers saying, "Wow." When I go back, like, oh, how's America? How are you going? <laughs> Can we help with Australian savings? What do we need to do? Um, so, yeah, it's been yeah very supportive. And so you finish high school in Torquay and what's your next move to, to chase that childhood dream? At the end of year 12, I was pretty torn, actually. I remember talking to my big brother, did engineering at that point, but um, he ended up moving into finance more. Okay. And, uh, and he was like, right, you still seem to be serious about this. Let's go talk to some people. So he dragged me off to a little one-day thing at MIT where there was um, a professor there, Lachlan Thompson, who had some students doing space-related research. Uh So I chatted to him and to some others and they made it clear that Andy Thomas, our Australian astronaut at the time, you know, a pretty formative figure at the time when I was working out what I was going to do, and a very successful astronaut. um, I found out that he had done mechanical engineering in Adelaide and, uh, and so I thought, okay, well, that's it. I'm doing mechanical engineering. And um, was there, in those sort of early Melbourne Torquay days, was there a particular person who influenced you or encouraged you along the way? So I was lucky. I had um, some amazing teachers at Sacred Heart. I distinctly remember the physics teacher at the time standing up and yelling at us, and I had no idea what he meant, that society didn't expect us to do well in physics, so we had to get out there and prove them wrong. And, like, throwing a book across the room in in frustration (laughs) at the state of the world. And I was looking at him and thinking, you know, what's this guy? crazy yeah and it's only later once you're involved in the industry and you see how few females do get encouragement to go into it that you know I come to appreciate um in my first year of undergrad I um flew across to a conference in Adelaide at the time try and meet others in Australia who were interested in space research at that point it was pretty open (laughs) anyone interested in things to do with space and Adelaide has a pretty cool little burgeoning space industry they do and they're hosting the biggest space conference in the world in a couple of months which is really exciting yeah Yeah. so you went over there in in first year yeah and went to this tiny little conference that had maybe 10 people um (laughs) and actually met someone another Aussie there who now uh, works at NASA Ames Research Center up in the um, San Francisco Bay Area who was in a similar boat he was a few years older than me and was also looking to sort of take the step into turning into a real career Mm. and so then in my final year at Melbourne Uni I actually did a final project um, at RMIT uh, which uh, took a lot of support from the professor who supervised me at Melbourne Uni to get approval for that and get that through Um, so he had me do like a feasibility study of powering um, rovers and or just um, spacecraft Mm. on wind energy and so we looked at Mars and Venus as our two case studies But that turned out to be great. So from there, the work I did, I got to go and present at the IAC, the same conference. In Glasgow. It was in Glasgow, yeah. So Mm. I was actually helped out by the Lions Club of Torquay. Okay. Um, 
And so they covered the registration for the conference. And then I actually accepted a job in management consulting to get the sign-on bonus to pay for the rest of the trip. <laughs> so that gives you a little bit of context for going on this trip. It was pretty important to well, me. Well, you clearly wanted to do it, yeah. Yeah. And then I got there and honestly, that was the first time I'd seen the international space community and was surrounded by people who, you know, it was their bread and butter every day. Mm. And it was there that I saw, um, you know, researchers from Stanford and other universities presenting and I thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I really loved, I actually obviously still love Torquay and was finding it really hard to fathom leaving. But Mm. when I went to that conference, I was like, no, this, this can be real. And at some point in there, you also did a course at the International Space University, which sounds to me like something out of the Jetsons. (laughs) Tell me about that. Even while you're there, it feels like it's out of the Jetsons. (laughs) So it's a university that was set up uh, by three entrepreneurs, but they wanted to promote um, space exploration Mm. and overcome barriers between countries, overcome barriers from different fields. And so this course they set up, it actually, every year it's held over the summer, the Northern Hemisphere summer Mm. and it moves around the world it's run for two months at a time Um, the year that I took place and it just felt like it was just everything falling into place it was the first year that NASA had offered to host the program oh wow Uh, and as a foreigner it's very very difficult to get your foot in the door at NASA Mm. so I essentially decided well it's meant to be Around that time, I think you had a big moment. You applied and got into Stanford. And I think your job at a sushi restaurant helped kind of um, connect the financial dots for you. About a day after getting in, I realized that I had to work out how to pay for it. And most people think about that before they apply, <laughs> uh, not after they're accepted. <laughs> so, and I'd been so focused on ISU and how I was going to cover that summer mm. um, that I ended up Uh, having to defer Stanford for the year. But the only way I was able to do that was, yeah, through the help of my local sushi shop owner. So I was working, saving money for the summer at ISU at the sushi shop in Torquay, which was great. And I loved my boss and I was very challenged at work because it was doing things with your hands all day when I was used to sitting at books. And so I was actually working there in the end full time uh, whilst waiting for this program at NASA to start. And uh, one day at work, I was a bit... uh, down because I um, had realised that I'd missed all the scholarship ap- like applications for the states yeah. because I'd just been oblivious to it. I'd missed the boat and I'd messed up. Um, and so I was, I was really flat and she pulled me aside and she was like, you know, what's going on? You're not yourself. Can I help? And I was like, oh, look, I'm not sure that you can. I've been accepted to Stanford and I think I have to turn it down and I just have to adjust to that and that's where it's at. Mm. And she was like, oh, Really? that seems ridiculous. Surely there's a way. And I was kind of like, oh, that's nice of you to say. It turns out her dad was heavily involved with Rotary and Rotary are the largest private scholarship organisation in the world. And I had no idea. So yeah. before I knew it, uh, she'd put me in contact with her father who then put me in contact with the district. It just so happened that our local district had been saving for three years to have a fellowship that was coming available that following year to send someone to do graduate study in a country other than their country of <laughs> residence. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was another instance of, yeah, my home community came in with the goods. And Absolutely. Gave me an opportunity I could never have had. And so I guess the lesson there as well is, I mean, no matter what job you're doing, do it well. and uh. Yeah, and honestly, like, I know so many people who have these dreams and I understand why, but they keep it to themselves in case if it fails. Yeah. So they don't have to deal with um, everyone seeing their rejection yeah. and hurt. And it is tough when you talk about something publicly and then you miss out 
Um, but I would have completely missed out. And in this case, a completely random turn of circumstance made it possible. So I should mention the Fulbright, Australian American Fulbright Commission. So I was lucky enough to get another scholarship from them. Uh, Stanford's pricey enough, you need two. <laughs> <laughs> so you jump on a plane, you go to Stanford. Uh, tell me about that. So I arrived at Stanford and um, felt like I'd stepped into an American movie. I remember <laughs> the first like graduate welcome party with uh, the red plastic solo cups. I just couldn't stop giggling. <laughs> um, so I'd had about a year and a half away from real study by the time I'd gone from Melbourne Uni to Stanford with the time in between. Mm-hmm. management consulting and rolling sushi. So the first day of class, actually, my basic mathematics skills struggled a bit. And I remember grabbing the books and thinking, right, I just have to go force myself to go to a library and stare at this stuff a bit until it comes back. And it did, but the first three weeks were a bit of a shock. Mm. Though I would say that the theoretical skills from the Australian universities were as strong or stronger than a lot of my counterparts at Stanford. At the end of your master's degree, I think you got picked up as an intern with NASA. It was amazing. Honestly, getting my foot in the door at JPL was something I'd always wanted to do. So JPL are responsible for um, most of the robotic exploration of the solar system, runs, operates the Deep Space Network, which Australia is a part. Mm. So they do all the communication with the different satellites. And at any given time of day, you can walk into the room and see which spacecraft we're communicating with wow. around which planets. Um, and so you got an internship with... I was so excited. <laughs> but yeah, I showed up on day one and they were like, okay, well, we have a mission that we want you to help work on and we've gone and got an export license so you can work on the propulsion for that mission um, and off you go. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. A lot of learning. Um, I feel like a lot of propulsion knowledge is it's a combination of obviously science skills and things, but mm. also just what you learn from what has happened before and how you can then apply that to future scenarios. And so um, I think that was my first exposure to hearing about, you know, different missions that had taken place and what had gone on in them and, yeah. And they obviously loved your work because they decided they were going to fund your PhD back at Stanford. Tell me about that. I was lucky. I had a chance to prove myself um, just doing a small analysis task to close an action. And it just so happened that the area that I was researching at Stanford at the time, which was a class of rockets, were of interest at JPL. They were just starting to look at whether they could use it for some of their exploration missions. And so right at the end of that time was right when it was in the midst of doing proposals for funding work at universities mm-hmm. and it all just kind of fell into place and I got my next three years of funding. And you did your PhD in? Uh, so the department's aeronautics and astronautics at Stanford um, and it was hybrid rocket propulsion and applications to outer planet exploration missions. Exactly what I'd kind of always want to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they stayed in touch. Oh, yeah. So I, I ended up doing three. Yeah, they were paying <laughs> the bills. So I had to come and let them know what I was doing. And I did three internships uh, during my PhD mm. um, where I'd come back down to JPL as well as various trips during the year just to present on what we'd been doing research-wise. Mm. And then I had a pretty good relationship with my group supervisor and the group I was going to be working with. So... A lot of them actually surprised me for my PhD defence uh, in the States, which is an open uh, forum, yep. and anyone can show up. My group from JPL um, appeared in the Bay Area Oh wow! to surprise me, <laughs> which made me burst into tears <laughs> in front of a room full of people waiting to grill me on my thesis topic. So I officially finished at Stanford, I think, on the Thursday and started work on the Monday. And so tell me about life at NASA. 
depending on which NASA center you're at, it can be a totally different yeah. experience. Um, one thing about JPL, it still strives to be pretty dynamic and there's a lot of very enthusiastic people all just excited about this idea of exploring mm. and doing it as well as we can. So I really like that aspect. The one thing with JPL missions, though, is that the missions take a long time to build and then fly. Yeah. But if you're doing Earth satellites, you might do many each year. You're likely to do many each year. Mm. If you go to JPL, you'll be seven years on one project. And it might not end up going as you'd hope. So I've been lucky. I came in right as the Mars 2020 rover, the next rover um, to Mars that is essentially a build to print of the previous um, Curiosity rover uh except that it's got a new suite of science so and uh a new bigger better arm to do um more interesting science and collect samples that we hope will one day be returned to earth cool and so i came in right as that was in full swing and they were having a problem with uh the measurements they were trying to take with two of their science instruments essentially they needed to clear dust from the samples mm. And they were trying to use a brush, which is what they'd used in the past for this particular set of requirements. It wasn't working and it wasn't going to work. Mm -hmm. And so I got brought on and told I could spend whatever I wanted. I just needed to solve the problem, which is a really exciting way to start work. So I got thrown in the deep end where, um, you know, I got told about the problem. Within a week, I had to have a test set up running and within a few weeks had results. And then uh, just a couple of months later was baseline for flight and frantically on a fast track to get my hardware built, qualified and ready for delivery. So I'm now in the midst of that fast track. Um, okay. The nice thing about it is, yeah, it's a very accelerated, exciting timeline that's still one of these major missions uh, for the centre. Yeah. And then I'm also lucky that my PhD work has um, turned into we're looking at propulsion for CubeSats. CubeSats are like mini satellites. Yeah, mini spacecraft. Uh, they can be bigger. Uh, so JPL will typically talk about 12U, mm. which is 1U is 10 centimetre by 10 centimetre by 10 centimetre. Okay. So 12U is 12 lots of that. Mm. Um, and the 12U is kind of a minimum-ish size for a standalone interplanetary CubeSat, which has never been done before. But that's the goal, to try to get these things to fly, do their own missions, return their own science. And it's only just now becoming possible with miniaturization of electronics and everything yeah. else. But we don't yet have propulsion systems to do these standalone missions. Uh, and so we have funding to develop a propulsion system that's uh, very similar in terms of its technology. It's a hybrid rocket, just like what I worked on. Yeah. And so I split my time between doing this accelerated program for flight that's much more traditional in nature, and then new technology development for these CubeSats and SmallSats. And then in amongst it all, occasionally you'll just have Matt Damon walk into your office. <laughs> Tell me about that. He has come to JPL, uh, and it's always one of those when you find out which engineers get to meet these people, it's like, ah, oh, what? How do I get myself on the list? So it wasn't you? I didn't get to meet him, unfortunately. Right. Okay. And, but you have met um, Australian astronauts like Andy Thomas. I've spoken with him on the phone. He actually okay. gave me some career advice. What did he tell you? It was right when I was finishing my master's at Stanford and um, was trying to look into options because I'd come out with Fulbright. And I had this PhD opportunity laid out with JPL and wanted to talk to someone else about whether that was the best thing to do. Yeah. And so I had been trying to get a hold of Andy Thomas and within a few minutes of emailing him, he wrote back with his phone number and said, give me a call. Wow. He was great. Got yeah. on the phone, gave me the advice I needed. And um, he actually had worked at JPL before becoming an astronaut. Okay. Which was great to talk to someone else who, yeah. Who's followed that path. Yeah. 
I mean, I understand your long-term career goal is to still one day be an astronaut. What's next on that path? So the US will do um, like calls for astronauts periodically. Mm-hmm. I'm now at the point where a lot of my friends from Stanford have been applying. Um, I think we've had two calls that people were somewhat eligible for. Yep. The more recent one was the first one that people were really meeting the criteria for. There was one that had like 30,000 applications last year, I think. Yeah, that's that's the one. They're not they're not an every year type of thing. It's funny you say thirty thousand. I'm good mates with uh, Soyeon Yi, the Korean astronaut. Okay. And when she applied, it was thirty thousand applications, and she was the one. Wow. I think she still counts herself pretty lucky. Yeah, I bet. Uh, she's an impressive woman. Yeah. So it's just waiting for the calls. When yep. the calls come out, you put in your application and hope for the best. If you're accepted, then um, you're going to like astronaut training school. It's based out of Johnson. So Johnson does, that's NASA Johnson, um, Texas. Uh, They'll do uh, like the astronaut training. But as part of that, astronauts will move around from place to place. They're not just in the one location, but that's Mm -hmm. where they're primarily based. What sort of missions is NASA hiring for these days? Yeah, that's a good question, Um, particularly with the the launch industry, the way that it currently is. Mm -hmm. There's mixed feelings about where it's going to go, and I think it's been up in the air ever since the shuttle retired. But at the very least, we have, for now, the International Space Station doing amazing science, um, really interesting work. And then we'll see. It's hard to say. So there was talk about doing the asteroid return mission uh, that was recently cancelled. Like going to an asteroid and then chucking a UE and coming back. Yeah, and bringing it, bringing it with. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then, of course, the moon is always on people's radar. Mars, ultimately, I think, is the goal of a lot of the folks working at NASA. Mm. Uh, and that's because... Mars, there's evidence that Mars was once a very different planet to now. Could have been a lot more Earth-like. Mm. It was certainly a lot wetter and I think warmer. And so um, there's real potential to find life there. And so that is continuing to be a point of interest. Plus, yeah. relative to other planets, it's a lot easier for us to get to. Um, and it's actually feasible that we can land humans there. They'll survive and, uh, and be able to bring them back. Okay. So, What is it about space that has grabbed you all these years since um, since your early days in Torquay? I'm still very much inspired by the idea of um, the notion that as humans we're sort of meant to explore. I know some others who like the idea of exploring for exploitation, mm-hmm. but I'm more in the camp and I think it tends to be kind of split. I'm in the camp that a lot of the technology we develop for space encourages closed systems. Mm-hmm. And so that means inherently more renewable use of resources and so i really like the fact that the reason that nasa was originally set up and it wasn't military was so that they could spin off technologies to benefit mankind yeah and and that's exactly what they've done since Mm. Uh, and i like contributing to that i think it's a really noble cause i think there's not too many places that you can go and work in the world that's trying to do things like that to genuinely just better society yeah and then you still get to be an explorer well, you come a long way from your early days in beautiful Torquay. Can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks for the chat. Thank you. Please do leave us a review and follow the Australian Consulate General Los Angeles on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>